What's up guys, it's Matt Whitmore here again with the lovely Keris Marsden and it's Fitter Food Radio and we are episode number 22 um, and we've got an awesome guest on the show this week, only natural, we only ever get awesome guests on our show um, and this guy, I'll be surprised if any of our, especially our UK based listeners have heard of him um, and I don't mean that in a bad way, it's just that I'm, I'm sure that in the States there are, there are certain people that have heard of him. I didn't even know he was what he was until he told me at PrimalCon in Mexico. I'm being very cryptic, I know, but this guy is called Brad Kearns. And Brad, I'm not even going to introduce you. I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself and, and tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and, and, and why you're so awesome. Oh my gosh, I was getting so excited. I thought you were going to introduce Ali G or something. <laughs> Check it! I'm here on the podcast with the Matt and the lovely Paris from London Staines area. Okay, it's, it's you've been doing it's your American research. Guy. I'm an American, so honored to be on this this wonderful podcast. And yes, we finally met in person at Primal Contalum. Uh, I work for Primal Blueprint Publishing, and. Uh, you found us, or we found you, in that incredible book, Fitter Food, Aww, that uh, you know, we did a lot of stuff come across our desk, but this thing came forward, and everyone was like, oh my gosh, you got to look at this, look at these recipes, oh my goodness, so we ended up publishing your guy's book, you did? and then found out how super cool you are all around, not just authors, but lifestyle and fitness pioneers and trendsetters, so <laughs> that was great that we were able to connect and have you uh, come and work with our guests at Primal Con in Tulum. So I've been working with Mark Sisson, Primal Blueprint, for six years now. It's been a wonderful journey, especially because for both Mark and I, the, the whole Primal Paleo evolutionary health is so dramatically different from uh, the background, the, the place that we came from, which was the extreme endurance athletic world. So I was a professional triathlete for nine years. I was a distance runner in school, like Roger Bonister, but I did not break four minutes in the mile at Ifley Road in Oxford. <laughs> and so I ended up being a triathlete. Um, Mark was my coach way back when in the 80s and 90s when I competed on the professional circuit. And um, he was also a former uh, high-level marathon runner, 218 marathon runner, fourth place in the Hawaii Ironman, and then turned into a uh, personal trainer and coach in Los Angeles, where I was based. And um, uh, so we connected way back when through the endurance sports world, and I had a, a nice nine-year career on the professional circuit, competing all over the globe. My best year was uh, 1991. For those ancient listeners, maybe that um, did triathlon back then, they, they probably did hear of me. <laughs> and, they're, yeah. and they're still around, which is great. Um, but I, I uh, was national champion in the United States, and I was ranked third in the world in '91, and um, had some had some good results. And I also had a lot of struggles because the sport is so difficult; it's actually uh, often compromising to your health. And that's the challenging part: is that trying to compete at an elite level, practically in every sport, but especially in, in endurance sports, you're constantly on that red line of but trying to preserve your health, your energy, your immune function, your digestive system, and pushing it just a bit harder to get, uh, you know, one minute faster on uh, on the race course on a two-hour race. Well, this is why it's interesting, though, because you know, I mean, we first spoke with you was it kind of like the summer of last year, and all this time we were doing, you know, we had lots of correspondence about the book and and whatnot, 
and and then of course we were invited to Mexico, and and even just until then we just knew you as Brad Kearns, you know, worked at Primal Publications, and you know this guy that we had just had a, a a lot of chat with over email, and then you kind of like we found out your whole story of you being a a pretty pretty huge uh, triathlete. And you spoke at PrimalCon and we were actually a bit like, what is Brad going to talk about? Because we've got all these other, we've got doctors here, nutritionists and, and, and whatnot who are obviously talking about nutrition, lifestyle, etc. So we were a bit like, where does, where does Brad fit in here? Because as far as we knew, you didn't have that background. And then, of course, you said your story, which is, you know, why we were really intrigued to get you on the show. So um, you said you... You trained with Mark. What made you seek out Mark Sisson above kind of other triathlete coaches back then? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, Mark was a real pioneer back then with figuring out these notions that this stuff is bad for you. And remember, this is many, many years ago where the, the mentality, um, e- even in Europe and Britain and, and all that too, with all the great ladies that you have with the runners and stuff, it was how much work can you perform and the more mileage you can run for a runner or, or whatever the sport was, swimming, the better you be. And so it was just you know, a massive uh, a party of carnage with bodies falling apart and the survival of the fittest, the strongest guys going out and setting records and performing well. But it was, um, you know, it was the challenge of the sport and noticing my body break down as a runner and constantly getting injured and sick. Uh, but but also, you know, having talent, having the glimpse that, hey, I could do this stuff if I could just figure it out and learn how to train right and take care of my body. And, you know, being the analytical type anyway, um, I would always, you know, go back and reflect upon what was the best way, what was the best strategy to prepare my body for these grueling competitions without falling apart. So Mark and I definitely connected on that level. Um, by the time he found me and was in the coaching scene, he was a washed up, burnt out, injured, cranky uh, <laughs> old guy um, who had, you know, been there and done that with his endurance career and had that awakening that um, there's possibly a better way than struggling and suffering all the time. And so, even though it sounds simple today and everyone knows about balance and you can go onto the internet, which we didn't have back then, and Google all the articles about resting and recovery and how important it is. Um, we were in the mentality of, you know, macho training sessions and survival of the fittest. So we got into a different path where, um, you know, Mark was one of the first authors in the whole uh, multi-sport scene. He wrote a book called um, uh, Training for Biathlon and uh, started floating these concepts like breakthrough workouts and uh, recovery days and, and things like that. So um, his training methods or his coaching methods about training were quite revolutionary at the time and they really worked for me and that's when I was able to progress to um, you know the, the top world level where before I was falling short of my potential simply because I was trying to keep up with all the blokes, you know, in the pack every day when we were training. Wow. And did he um, address your nutrition as well, Brad, or was it just purely training and recovery? And Yeah, good question. He just, you know, he just had me read Fitter Food and, <laughs> in, in, in no time. Oh, that was a few years before that. Okay. Um, yeah, but back then it was still the carb paradigm. Yeah. I mean, you had to refuel with massive amounts of uh, dietary carbohydrates to sustain the training. I mean, we were out there for, um, and I wasn't a heavy volume trainer either, but I was still out there for 15 to 30 hours a week of exercise, quite a bit of it at, uh, you know, moderate to high intensity. The swim workouts were always challenging. 
Um, we ran hard. We did a lot of biking in the hills. I mean, uh, several days of the week, I'd spend all day on the bike. So um, I was just looking for um, a way to consume enough calories to wake up the next day and do it again. So how, how would you change that now? If you, if you knew then what you knew now, what would you do? I would purchase stock in Apple at the price of three dollars, and, <laughs> and then I'd be, um, you know, I'd be a part owner right now. Well, what else would I do? Yeah, the the thing is, it's it's really funny. I mean, you see the 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 Brits. I'm sure are familiar with the Brownlee brothers, who, by my estimation, yeah. are the most talented and extraordinary triathletes in history. I mean, they're they've turned the sport into a whole other dimension where they're basically performing at an all-out sprint pace in three events for two hours in the Olympics. And, you know, the, the amazing training that they perform to, to get to that level, um, there's no way around it. It's extremely hard work, and it's always going to be compromising to your health. So if you want to pursue a high-level goal, such as I want to race on the circuit, you have to do all manner of uh, damage control strategies to simply uh, be competitive. And, and protect your health in any way you can. And that would mean, you know, all the complementary treatments, massage therapy, chiropractic, uh, physical therapy, uh, massive amounts of sleep. And um, I always get eyebrows raised at my talks when I mention that during that nine-year career that I had on the professional circuit, I slept for half of that time. So over that nine years, however many 3,000 days, I slept an average of 12 hours every single day. Um, wow. 10 hours at night, and then a two-hour nap every afternoon. And if I didn't get my nap, I was cranky and dragging, and it threw my whole training schedule off. So um, that was just a small example of the commitment necessary, not, not just you know getting out there and pushing yourself in the workout. That was kind of a, a given. That was easy. Everybody could do that. But all the other complementary things, like getting enough sleep or taking care of injuries and noticing the beginnings of an injury – and modifying your training accordingly so that you don't have downtime. Um, all those things, I think, were a huge part of uh, success, more so than just having the macho attitude to go out and pound people on the nearest hill. Well, that's one, one question I was going to ask was, how did you respond um, when Mark was coaching you, if he told you to rest more and, and ease off the training? I know for a lot of people we work with, that's actually quite difficult. They're so, you know, in that mindset <laughs> and ready to, like you said, it's a lot easier to beast yourself than it is to take your foot off the pedal and relax a little bit. How did you respond when he started to tell you to rest more? And Matt, do... what is, uh, Matt, what is Karis doing over there? Is she like go Googling on the internet and looking at all, all my... Um... My secrets and my frailties. Come on. <laughs> how did you know? How did you know to ask that question? You must have eavesdropped on one of the cocktail gatherings at Tulum. No, it's so funny you asked. It's great because a highly competitive athlete, young guy, wants to win, wants to beat that guy that, that beat him at the last race. Um, and it was a constant battle. So it got to be this thing where, you know, at the end of our phone conversations or our in person conversations, Mark would end the call or the conversation every time with, Remember, BK, trust. Trust, that's your word, <laughs> trust. And it meant that I had to trust my body. I had to trust the natural progression of fitness and how the body gets fit because I had a tendency to be impatient, the big picture perspective. I wanted to get you know fit right away and see the results right away, just like a lot of people. So the, you know, the real breakthrough in my career came, interestingly, 
when I moved out of the Los Angeles area where there's a ton of athletes and there's top-level swimmers. I trained with the junior national um, uh, swim team people and um, you know, there's, there's always professional cyclists you can find out on the road, is when I moved to a small town in Northern California where I still live, and all of a sudden from training in these huge packs, I mean literally 100 people on bike rides, dodging the cars and dodging each other, to just heading out by myself. And so finally, I had to adopt a completely intuitive sense of how to uh, push my body and how to challenge my body and how to balance stress and rest. And so with that lack of training partners, I don't you know, necessarily recommend this at home, but for me it was a good progression because I was already motivated and I didn't need all those people and all that noise in my head about um, you know, comparing to other athletes. So I was able at a better level to trust myself and trust the process and if I'd woken up with a sore throat like we were talking about off the air a bit, um, I finally realized that instead of going and swallowing some hot liquids and jumping on the bike, that the best course of action for my professional career, for my uh, rising up the ladder of rankings, was to turn off the lights, go back to bed, and unplug from my entire life for 24 to 36 hours, and then I'd be fine. And if I didn't do that, and this is the case for everyone, when you wake up with a slight tickle in your throat and you head over to the gym or out onto the road and you pick up a cold, which is the most likely uh, end game of, of something like that, you're going to struggle for about two weeks. You're going to have major symptoms for one week and be exhausted and probably you know, be unable to exercise normally. And then the second week, you're going to be still recovering from it, still have subpar energy levels, and it's going to be a two-week downer instead of a 36-hour break from your training, which, as we all know, when you're resting and recovering, that's when you actually get better and improve. So I was finally able to trust myself that, you know, the days of sleeping in till 10.30, staying in bed and reading for another couple hours, and then getting my butt up and, and pedaling my bike two miles over to the video store to rent a bunch of videos and spend the afternoon and evening watching movies, that was part of my winning formula, my peak performance formula to be a champion athlete. And that's a big one. You know, I'm, I'm rambling and really emphasizing this point here because I think it's important for all the listeners to realize that whatever level you're pursuing your fitness goals, a huge part of it is to tap into that intuitive power to, to know the right thing to do every single day. And sometimes you guys probably get pushed back on this too for a novice that says, oh, wait a second, I'm just starting out in this. I don't really know my body. I can't sense when I should take a day off. And I'm, I'm going to counter that and say that um, whoever you are, whatever you, the listener, are the world's foremost expert on your own personal training program. Matt and Karis are pretty smart. They're going to give you some great advice. They're going to give you the roadmap. But you and only you know the truly best course of action every single day. And it's so simple to pick up on those signs of uh, a traumatized joint or sore throat and realize that that means back off until those symptoms of pain have disappeared. I think you're absolutely spot on and, and you're, you're right in that Matt and I see it all the time. We do online plans and we work with individuals you know, in gyms and, and basically we get these, these emails about, oh, I'm just training around an injury or um, I'm just sort of upping my running miles this week but my gut's a bit off. Can, what supplements can I take you know, to help with digestive health? And, and it's, it's really hard because you almost, you, you know, 
it's where to start with each individual in terms of convincing them that actually what they need to do is rest. But Matt and I had a similar thing where um, we sort of had a phase, well, in, in our 20s, I'd say, well, you're still in your 20s. Still in my 20s, thank you very much. <laughs> but I remember reading once that, uh, this is in a running magazine, where it said, if you had a cold um, and it was more of a head cold, just basically take um, a little bit of cold flu remedy, a double espresso, and head out on your run. But if it was from, I think it was throat down, then then you shouldn't go for a run. And I used to do that for years. So I'd go out with a headache or, you know, with actually like a, a snotty nose and I'd still go for my run, which is madness really, because it's the last thing my body needed. Well, that's the thing as well, isn't it, is that a lot of people often train, you know, not necessarily running, you know, they just, they might go and lift some weights, run, swim, you know, whatever it may be, Zumba. Um, as a way to make themselves feel better. So if they are feeling a bit groggy and a bit snotty, they often go to the gym thinking, oh, pick me up a little bit. And it often does very, very briefly for maybe 30 to 90 minutes after the workout, but then they normally crash and burn. And then like you said, Brad, you know what, what could have been just a, a day off and then they come back nice and strong the next day turns in a week to, to two weeks of, you know, of, of not training and chances are, making poor food choices as well to kind of make up for the fact that they feel pretty crappy. Right. I mean, here's the thing. It, it, it kind of comes down to cortisol. And so if you're going to Google a word or, or put it in the show notes and your listeners aren't familiar with uh, the function of that primary stress hormone, um, when all the smoke cleared and when I was still struggling in my career despite you know setting up my life and doing everything I could to be a good professional, um, you realize that your ability to handle and regulate stress is what predicates your your peak performance and your immune system and your energy function and all that. And when you stimulate the body, when you challenge your body and elicit the fight or flight response, such as even a, a moderate workout will start getting those stress hormones kicking into your bloodstream and it provides a sense of um, euphoria, peak performance, and regulate, uh, increased blood flow, increased uh, stroke volume of the heart, uh, enhanced mental function, cognitive function. And so these fight or flight stimulation is a wonderful survival mechanism and uh, a genetic hardwired attribute for humans. And it's great to tap into that because that's what an at Crystal Palace trying to uh, break 10 seconds in the 100. He has stress hormones flooding through his bloodstream to allow him to perform superhuman feats. Now, the average person who goes to the gym and calls on that fight or flight response uh, in many ways throughout the day, such as a highly stressful work environment, arguments, personal stresses, all those kinds of things all add up to um, what we always talk about in the primal blueprint is chronic stress. And that's the, the yeah. you know, the biggest challenge in modern life is that unrelenting fight or flight stimulation to the body. And then that eventually causes your stress hormones to stop performing or, or producing uh, the hormones at normal levels. And then you feel tired, burnt out, exhausted, injured. I think um, and that's an amazing point. And something that you also mentioned at PrimalCom was when people start to use exercise almost to cope with stress, um, but also... We saw, and you mentioned this, when people start to put quite a lot of pressure on themselves when it comes to exercise, so perhaps because they're quite good at something or achieved a personal best at something, the next time they go to the gym, it, they have to do 
as good as or even better than their last session. So rather than just doing exercise because it's healthy, because you enjoy it, because it's it you know provides a, a release from stress or your your working day, suddenly people are piling on extra pressure in the form of you know how quick they do a run and or what weights they lift in the gym, and it's not so fun anymore. And you mentioned this with your races as well. Oh, that's a good one, Karis. You're right. And and so what happens is you have to take a couple steps back. And, of course, after I was through racing, I got into coaching and coached triathletes for many, many years. And I'd get to this point of frustration with the, um, with the client where I'm dispensing the information and, and the philosophy. And then you're seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the bullheaded, stubborn personalities come out, which is common with a type A, highly motivated, goal-oriented uh, uh, pursuit like fitness, <laughs> triathlon, whatever. And so I, I finally got to the point where I'd say, you know, we got to talk about what is your highest goal and purpose for doing this? And 99.9% of the people say, oh, I want to be a better person. I want to be well-rounded. Um, I, want to, I want to set goals and feel good about my body. Um, I want to be a role model, children, blah, 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 etc. All these wonderful things. And then, wait a second. You've just said all that, and you're going out and exercising with a sore throat? So you're behaving in a manner that's incongruent with your stated goals. Because a person who exercises with a sore throat or a sore shoulder is not pursuing peak performance. They're not trying to reach their physical athletic potential. They're using uh, exercise as an outlet for their obsessive compulsive tendencies. And it's a hard conversation to have and it's hard to look in the mirror and say, oh, am I an OCD freak that um, is addicted to exercise? Yeah, it's better <laughs> than being addicted to substances. But if that's what you're all about, that's different than your stated goal of saying, oh, I want balance in my life and I want to reduce the aging process and I want to um, you know, feel what it's like to perform at my peak and, and all those things. When you were working with clients, and, and this is, uh, I'm just quite intrigued by this because obviously the whole primal approach to nutrition and training, you know, it is quite hard to believe that Mark Sisson gets away with just a couple of interval training sessions a week compared to obviously his like, biathlon and triathlon days, which I can imagine would have been you know, a, a completely different ball game. Um, so when did you start to, did you start to see a change in the kind of the approach to nutrition whilst you were still working with people? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the primal paleo low carb scene um, has not quite caught on with the endurance crowd. Uh, really? Yeah. There's a small niche now of these guys like um, Dave Zabriskie, the Tour de France cyclist, and a few other names of um, elite athletes who are actually pursuing a um, even a ketogenic approach to endurance exercise. So it's really cutting edge, and it's it's kind of exciting to realize that there may be some potential to actually perform at a high level uh, on a ketogenic diet and, and training strategy. Um, but generally speaking... I mean, the energy gel market is still uh, a booming market segment. I just saw a financial friend of mine sent me a prospectus to ask me what I thought about this um, this energy gel uh, investment opportunity, and I gave him, you know, I gave him uh, ten minutes of uh, my diatribe on the entire subject. And uh, but but the thing is, people are still buying and consuming a lot of sugar to go and run their uh, their marathons and do their triathlons. So back to that question you asked, like, what would I do differently? Um, one of the first things I would I would uh, ask everybody is, um, do you really need 
to run a marathon as your endurance goal. What's wrong with a half marathon? You know, it's, it's half the distance. It's still an extremely long and challenging event, and you'll feel a great sense of satisfaction when you finish, but then you can go out to brunch instead of having to go home and, and crash out and, and need help into the bathtub. But the, the issue is now is it's not even just marathons. You've got, um, I don't know if they're as big in the U.S., but in the U.K., adventure racing is just massive. And they are just getting to be longer and even more extreme. So I think there's a, a Tough Mother and there's Spartan t- Racing. Tough and Mother, not Tough, tough Mother. mother. <laughs> you keep mother. saying that. Tough Mother. <laughs> I love it, I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Why, you know, why does it have to be that way? And um, it, it could possibly, I know I'm being a little hard-hitting here, but, you know, it could possibly suggest um, an, an, an unhealthy life balance or something that's... Um, calling you to struggle and suffer at such a level when I think if you recalibrate the challenge and, you, and let's say pursue a shorter event, um, there's all kinds of fun things that can come into play. Like I, I liked um, sprint triathlon racing better than the Olympic distance. We didn't contest it very much, but it was truly all out because it was half the normal race distance. Yeah. So it was only about an hour instead of two hours. And um, it's just a different challenge where you're, you know, you feel like, you're competing more with your fellow competitors rather than just trying to pace yourself, like in the example of a, a, a long-distance thing. I mean, if it gets too long and too challenging, all you're trying to do is survive till you get to the finish line instead of truly compete as an athlete. Yeah, that's a good point, a really good point. My, I, I'm against marathons for me. Like, I, I would never, ever run that kind of distance. I'm certainly not built for it, and I don't think I'd enjoy it. But I'm all for people kind of having a goal, and, and, and if they love that kind of thing, going for it. But what we often find is that it's normally people that we would probably never recommend start doing long-distance endurance-based sport uh, that end up giving it a go because they've got this idea in their head, like you said, that it just seems like a good thing to do or potentially they use it as a, as a fat-loss tool. But then they often just get severely injured to the point where you know even walking is painful, let alone running. Or, you know, just get super frustrated because trying to fuel themselves for an endurance race whilst trying to lose body fat is probably just completely contradicting one another. So they get frustrated because they don't lose weight. Then they get injured, so they get even more frustrated. And we're just trying to get people to, like, pretty much exactly what you just said. Like, do you have to do a marathon? Do you even have to do a half marathon? Can't you just start a, a 5K, see how you get on, then build up to a 10K and, and go from there, you know? Right, and now let's let's say um, for the benefit of the listeners and everyone, okay, you, you, you're dead set. You've already signed up. You're going to do it. So we, we tried to talk you out of it. <laughs> we spent we spent three minutes and forty seven seconds, <laughs> and they're still signed up. Okay, well, guess what? There's a way to do this stuff right, and there's a way to still be healthy while you prepare for Ironman, marathon, and all those things. One way is don't do three of them a year for the next 17 years. You know, you want to go do the London Marathon or fly over to Boston and and do that exciting event, um, fine. You know, make it one of your bucket list things. But there's a a, a high probability of, um, of, you know, setback when you get too extreme. Okay, so let's say your your goals are sensible now and you're training. Um, I just strongly recommend an intuitive approach where you take stock of how the train, how your body is responding to the training, and rate and, and govern your training decisions uh, by by common sense. 
And it's great to have a program. You guys write up programs. You can help guide people with um, here's some suggested meals, here's some suggested rest and, and, uh, and intensity days and all that kind of thing. But it still comes down to is everything good to go on this particular day uh, for my planned and desired workout? And when I got to my highest level as an athlete, you know, again, mostly training by myself instead of with the pack, I would be so intuitive. It was almost ridiculous. Like I'd have a, a five, actually it was a seven-hour bike ride that I tried to do about three times a month, and it was way into the mountains, and it was, you know, an extreme day of training. And there was a gas station, uh, or you might call it a petrol station or something. <laughs> there was a gas station about 90 minutes into the ride. And I'd get to that gas station, I'd refill my water balls, and then I'd head way out into the into the wilderness and not have any civilization for the next four hours. Um, I got to that gas station, and about 25 to, to 33% of the time, I turned around, pedaled home, and took a two-hour nap. And that was my seven-hour <laughs> um, you know, training session. Because I realized after 90 minutes of uh, challenging riding up the hill, um, you know, my legs either responded or were ready to go for an extreme effort, or they weren't. But it took many, many years to realize that when, when it's not your day, it's a better idea just to dial it back and patiently wait until the day's right. And um, to give some credit where it's due, and over in the UK, Graham Obrey, is that how you say his name? Who? Graham Obrey. Obrey. Graham. The, the, the funky bicycle rider that set the hour record. Uh, you you got to check it out. He's a, he's a national hero, man. Really? We should know this, probably. We no. don't. Anyway, he, was the, um, he set the one-hour record on the um, time trial bicycle indoors in the velodrome. And he had a famous quote where you know, his favorite training session was getting on his stationary bike and pedaling as fast as he could for an hour. Wow. And um, he would get on his bike and, you know, try to start doing that for a few minutes. And if it was the right day, he'd, he'd keep going. And if it wasn't, he'd get off and wait until the next day. And then he'd wait until the next day or whenever it was right. And it, it's, it's really easy to know when you're, you're feeling light and airy and peppy and energetic. And even if you walk into the gym and, and you head over to the pull-up bar first thing, um, you'll know right away if you can you know, bust out 23 like Matt, no problem. Or if it's a struggle to do the first three, you'll know that you're still recovering and you need to modify your workout accordingly. So, so many people are, are far too attached to the outcome of a session yeah. to, to be able to do that. It takes real strength, I think, to stop and say, it's not happening. I need to go and do something else. Like you said, go and sit on the sofa and watch a, a DVD. It's, it's so hard. Well, I think like as humans are just kind of hooked on numbers. You know, They get yeah. it in their head that they must train four times a week for a bare minimum of an hour and anything less just isn't going to cut it. You know, like they couldn't possibly do a 45-minute session. They couldn't go to the gym just twice. And But the amount, I mean, and this was me, you know, I, I put my hands up. I was so guilty of this when I was younger. Um, and I would I would pretty much, I would punish myself um, to go to the gym, even if it was the last thing I even wanted to do, let alone perform well. But I would make sure that I went there to get my extra session in and, and I'd be in there for 60 minutes at least, you know, and anything extra was a bonus. Whereas now... I'm I'm completely in touch with that side of of my lifestyle and the amount of times I've gone to the gym and 10 minutes in just for as you said today is not my day 
and instead of just you know hitting weights or whatever i'll just do some stretching some mobility work i might do like a short burst of, of intervals or i may just grab my bag and turn around and go back home and make myself another cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> yeah and here's the thing uh much respect to to the highly motivated disciplined competitive folks out there it's a wonderful way to live it's better than being a, a slacker and we could we could have another show about how to get your butt up off the couch and and into the setting, but you know we're dealing with a, a different population and, and different set of um, uh, challenges. But here's the thing: when you give yourself the freedom to become and, and, and live as an intuitive athlete or intuitive exerciser, what happens on the other end is your peak performance potential opens up. On the flip side, in other words, you discover you access uh, the ability to push yourself harder than you ever have before and make fitness breakthroughs because you're always regulating and balancing stress and rest. So a quick example for me, I hooked up with this crazy guy named Johnny G who was the inventor of the spinning indoor cycling program oh, yeah. worldwide. He's the first guy that invented indoor cycling. Um, and we were training partners in Los Angeles. And his athletic goal was the race across America. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but um, it's a non-stop, it, it's an actual event, a non-stop bicycle race across our country, 3,000 miles. Wow. And they start on the West Coast at the beach, they fire the gun, and these guys ride uh, with a huge crew in motorhomes and, and, and vehicles following them the whole way. But they ride for about 20 hours a day, 22 hours a day for the leaders, and they will cross the America in eight days. And so it's the most extreme endurance event on the planet, probably. And so yeah. the training, uh, you know, that these guys put in is just ridiculous. So, um, you know, one day uh, Johnny called me up and said, "Hey, this weekend um, we're going to do a long ride. So be ready. I'm going to take you on an amazing adventure." Um, so I rested and and you know governed my um, my intensity and just took it easy, knowing that I was going to be out there and probably going. You know, for me, a long ride was like 100 miles on the bike, so I figured we were going to do an amazing 100-mile ride and, and so forth. Well, he, you know, his perspective was that a long ride was, was much further than 100. So, you know, we rode our bikes up the coast of, uh, of, of Southern California from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara and stopped for lunch, and that's when I realized that we were 100 miles into the ride, and it was just a stopping point for lunch, and we still had to turn around and go home. Oh, wow. And so on that day, he took me for a 200-mile bike ride. Jeez. And, you know, it recalibrated forever my notion of what a long ride was because 100 <laughs> miles was no longer a long ride for me. Now I had a, a, a different reference point because I, was, I had been able to um, break through whatever beliefs I had that limited me to thinking that, oh, 100 miles, that's a long day. I'm going to be home now and be tired and eat and rest. Um, but it, it challenged those notions because I allowed myself to, you know, expand on the on the other end of the spectrum. So for, for those competitive people that are frustrated because they, they don't want to stop at 45, they have to do minimum at an hour, they have to put in a minimum of this many miles per week. If you back off a little bit and relax and allow fitness to come to you and take what you can get out of your body every day and nothing more, then what happens is when those magical moments happen, you will bust through your previous plateaus and have way more fun and feel way more accomplished in the end, at the end of the day or the end of the month, than you would just following a, a rote schedule that's confining on both ends. It's such a different approach, though. I, can't, I can imagine people here just, it, it will have never occurred to them to even 
even take that you know take that natural approach to listen to their body and to actually think about enjoyment with exercise as well because most people are just enjoying the end point which is when you cross the line or when you finish and and when you can tick it off and say you've done it no one actually enjoys the build-up or (laughs) the taking part when it comes to exercise do they because you've mentioned sort of being intuitive have you ever used things like you, you hear people talk about heart rate variability or using even just heart rate monitors and temperature and things like that as a as a way of trying to check whether your body's up for a session or not? Um, That's a good question because it's helpful to have that biofeedback. But in my experience of um, hanging around some of the the greatest endurance athletes in the world in in many different sports, I noticed a decidedly low-tech approach, surprisingly, uh, with the very, very best athletes. So... You know, you can watch these uh, uh, documentaries about going to the training center and the, the swimmer swims a lap and he sticks his finger up uh, to the pool deck and the, the scientist you know, pricks his finger and, and puts the blood into <laughs> the machine and, and looks at how many millimoles of lactate are, are uh, doing at that particular pace and the cyclists have their wattage meters and all that stuff. And all that stuff's great and it might lend an element of amusement, especially to the high-tech minded, so I have, I have nothing against it. I'm personally kind of a low-tech, trending, you know, person, so I didn't really get heavily into it. Um, we did use heart rate monitors during uh, most workouts because there's a distinction between uh, predominantly aerobic session and then drifting into a mildly anaerobic session. Um, anaerobic is literally means without oxygen, where you start to uh, trend on the metabolic scale to an intensity that's slightly too difficult to process with mostly fat and, and um, sufficient oxygen. And so it's really important for endurance athletes, and like I said before, there's a way to do this right. If you're training for a marathon, most of your running sessions should be very comfortable, not, not taxing, not strenuous, but just building, building, building your endurance space and your aerobic efficiency, which happens at a comfortable pace. And so a heart rate monitor can be a very valuable tool to take out the subjectivity, especially when you're in a pack and you're excited and you're chit-chatting and all of a sudden the thing beeps that you're over your alarm. Um, but beyond that, I would, I would caution against an overly mechanical approach when um, even the very best athletes in the world, if they don't feel like it, they're going to skip their workout. And, and same with the, um, you know, you go to a big track meet in Europe and um, the, the, the headline runners, uh, you know, signed up to, to run the 100 meters and then you find out, out they, they change their mind and they pull out because they felt a slight twinge in their hamstring warming up for the event. And that's pretty awesome to see the intuitive sense of the, of the very best athletes and the, the care that they take for their bodies. That's good. I suppose I never thought of the flip side of it is what if you got up on a race day and all your markers, as in your heart rate or whatever, were all sort of, you know, in a, in negative in that sense, yeah. or not what you hoped they would be. It would really mess with your psyche, wouldn't it, for performance? Whereas, as you said, if you're just listening to your body, um, you know, you can sort of make that decision a bit more appropriately. I mean, have you ever pulled out of a race on the on the day, Brad? Oh, my gosh, many times. I mean, uh, you know, my, my uh, professional bio... Um, claims 31 victories on the professional circuit and one day I went through my files and tried to count how many times I dropped out and it was about exactly the same number wow. so you know um, I would I would trade that for a guy that has um, 60 top five finishes but no victories you know yeah you're not you're not going to win unless you push the envelope and a lot of times 
when you push the envelope, push the envelope, um, you blow a tire out, and it's 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 no big deal, and um, it'll it'll happen till the end of time with um, the highest level of performers. So, what you, on the triathlons that you were doing? What 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 were the distances for those? Well, the Olympic distance, which in my time it was before acceptance into the Olympics, but we called it the Olympic distance because we wanted to get in the Olympics one day. And huh. now, wonderfully, you get to see um, uh, Britain bring home the gold and the bronze with the Brownlee brothers. And um, the, the official Olympic distance is a 1,500-meter swim. Um, that's almost a mile for those of you in the um, Commonwealth that have refused to adopt the metric system um the, the bike ride is 40 kilometers that's 24.8 miles and then you finish with a 10k 6.2 so uh, a good a good racer will go um an hour and 48 minutes or so uh, to complete all three of those at once and then the iron man of course is the, the the ultra distance that many people are familiar with which is a 2.4 mile swim 112 mile bike ride and a 26.2 mile marathon at the end wow. that's just the whole Different level of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a different athlete, different mindset, and I, I found myself to be more of a uh, a power and you know intensity athlete. Where I mean, they're they're both endurance. A two hour race, we they, we called ourselves sprinters, but of course it's it's still an extreme endurance event. But it's quite a bit different than going for eight hours. And I was just more adapted to the shorter stuff. I I did the Ironman. Uh, once and I did the race in France, the the European version, several times. But it wasn't as much fun as um, you know, duking it out for two hours and then going out to breakfast after. So, what would your um, pre pre race um, nutrition be back then? Yeah, I finally figured out that uh, this this carbo loading notion um, could could only cause you trouble. So. Like the day before an athletic competition, I'd say this holds true today. Whatever type of meal plan you're on, um, it's it's probably a, a better idea to um, get a lot of calories in and have a major meal at breakfast, and then have a lighter meal at lunchtime, and then have a very light dinner, because there's no reason to throw food down your throat uh, when you're going to get up and traumatize your body 12 hours later. So, you know, it was, it was really um, the eating pattern overall is trying to get in a lot of high nutrition food, but then, you know, around competition time, you don't need to eat much, and you shouldn't. So did you have like um, a particular pre-race meal? Because I know that when uh, when I play rugby, I'd, I'd always have the same breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's, um, for me, it was, it was good to develop the superstition of being able to accept anything. So if I was in Israel for a race, I'd have their Israeli salad bar, and it was all kinds of stuff I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> um, but just being able to adapt and be flexible and not be, not be stuck on some magic formula. Um, and, and speaking of that point, and, and like Karis, you were saying, when, when your markers are off on race day, the thing is if you're good to your body and you respect the balance of stress and rest and what the, the, the function of that stress hormone cortisol that I mentioned before, you can always pull it out on the big day, even if you're you know not at your best because you're going to be flooded with uh, adrenaline, stress hormones, and you're going to rise to the occasion if you've been good and, and, and taking care of your body, um, you know, in a general lifestyle manner. So, you know, if if we came over to the um, to, to your to your office right now and we put a gun to your head, Matt, guess what? You could run a marathon. I don't care if you're built for it or not. <laughs> you and I are going to finish 26 miles, and then we might take you right to the, the hospital. 
but you'll be able to run a marathon right now, this evening, if you were called upon to do it. A question I wanted to ask, actually, um, and again, this is just out of pure interest, because I didn't actually know that Mark Sisson either came from a kind of a, a triathlon, more endurance-based background. Um, so you've obviously known him for some time now. When did you start to see a kind of a change in him in terms of his approach to training and nutrition and the more primal lifestyle? And at first, did you agree with it? Oh, good question, yeah. So um, we, of course, always kept in touch, but we're busy uh, doing other pursuits. And in 2008 is when we decided to um, work together to help uh, build the Primal Blueprint movement. And uh, he was researching and, and getting ready for uh, the production of the, the Primal Blueprint, the book, in 2009. So um, it was great to get started on the ground floor working with Mark and having him lay out the, uh, the foundation, the philosophy. And so um, I, I went cold turkey in June of 2008 and said, oh, okay, no more grains, really? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give it a try, and, and uh, that's been uh, six years now, um, next month, of a, a pretty strict uh, primal, you know, that's how I am. If he, if he, if he says no grains, then I'm not going to eat any. It's not like the biggest deal, and it's not the biggest sacrifice. Um, I used to eat the big giant bowl of cereal, and I switched that over to an omelet. And then as you get a few years down the line, one of the best things about uh, living this primal bio low-carb lifestyle is that you realize you're not dependent upon regular meals, which was so important, especially as an athlete, was constantly eating and snacking and stuffing food down my mouth. So uh, now my um, my eating patterns are much more sporadic and intuitive and spontaneous, and so it's it's nice to be free from uh, needing to, to refuel like a car at the uh, petrol station and have more focus on enjoyment and on honoring my natural appetite and the ebbs and flows of uh, how each day goes in terms of what I need to eat. Awesome. And what, what about, I mean, because obviously as a, an endurance athlete, you're, you would have been, you know, incredibly slim, you know, low body fat levels, etc. <laughs> I'm like the weakest guy in the weight room, but I, I still enjoy it in there. And um, You know what, Matt? I, I had such a long career as an endurance athlete. I mean, starting as a youth and I I kind of got into long-distance running in high school and and departed from all the other sports that I played prior to age 15 and then just started running circles around the track and down the road. And um, I was a college runner, but I was injured and sick so frequently from overtraining and overstress that I uh, landed in triathlon so it would be easier on my body. And then uh, so from, you know, ages 20 to 30, I was on the professional circuit uh, training as hard as I could every day and putting in tons of hours. So um, once that was over, um, I, I've now, you know, in, in my later years, become much more fond of explosive sports, high intensity, um, uh, sprinting, and, and, and getting into strength training in a much more committed manner than I, than I did when I was an endurance athlete. So it's kind of fun to have a reawakening of my uh, athletic pursuits and a total recalibration to you know now I'm doing stuff that I'm not genetically adapted or talented for I'm, a, I'm an endurance athlete that's in my genes and now my one of my favorite things to do is high jumping so <laughs> the high jumpers are the guys with a lot of spring and uh, tall and so forth but uh, to me it's just having your own personal individual goals and something that excites you and I also feel like with my current athletic passions, these promote and support my health 
and they help delay the aging process because I'm trying to maintain good tops in the 400 meters on the track or the 100 meters qualify for the the old guys track meet they call them the Masters National Track Meets in, in America. Because you're, so you're those like... kind of things are you know not destructive as as it would be if I was still trying to train for an Ironman or an Olympic distance triathlon. Because you're, you're like 75 now, aren't you, Brad? You're doing really well, aren't you? <laughs> it's just a number, man. <laughs> Still and, going uh, strong. I'm, I'm doing uh, better than I did in, in, in high school in the high jump and even in the 100 meters. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm amazed to see what, uh, you know, train. You train your body for something. You, you set goals and your body will respond even if you're an old guy. So you didn't just uh, quit the professional um, triathlons and put on like two stone of body fat then? Um, you know, that's funny. The the guys that I used to race with either did that or <laughs> they're still going, which is so amazing. And there are some people, I think, that are just, you know, they're such naturals that, that the um, the training, the, the tremendous uh, uh, number of hours and, and you know, metabolic uh, challenges of, of doing endurance, some people just are, are naturally adapted to it and they can go and go and go. I mean, my friend Pete Kane, who's now over 50 and still winning world age group championships wow. competed as a pro back 25 30 years ago and he just hasn't stopped ken Gloss done 30 consecutive hawaii ironmans in a row and that just Jeez. that was never me i was always struggling to try to recover and not be injured and keep my motivation high so now i do things that i consider to be much more fun than um the old stuff of just slogging away on the road for hours and hours so going back to um what you said earlier, Brad, about when you changed like your 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 diet from you know quite a heavy you know heavy heavy carb diet you know grains etc. What's a, what's a typical like day in the life of Brad Kearns now when it comes to food? What's a what's a typical meal plan for you? Um, I just pick up my copy of Fitter Food and I, I flip <laughs> pages, and then when my wife says stop, wherever my finger goes, we we make that recipe. So <laughs> we, you've tried now. I keep hitting the same page, though. I keep hitting the um, uh, the muffin things with the eggs, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really fluctuating. I, I'm mostly focused on consuming as much dark chocolate as possible. Oh, so good. that's, that's the centerpiece to my diet, and I also eat meat and eggs and a lot of vegetables, too. Do you start your day with the protein and fat-based breakfast that is quite typical these days, or do you still like to get a few carbs in there? Uh, mostly what I've transitioned to, like earlier I was speaking about how I went from the, the giant bowl of cereal to the giant omelet every day, and now I'm kind of more on that compressed eating window style where I won't really bother eating in the morning or won't bother eating much. If there's some dark chocolate around, I'll have that for breakfast. But, um, my first my first major, major meal will be later in the morning or even into the afternoon, and that might be a big salad or it might be um, a more traditional breakfast meal like uh, an omelet. And you know what I do is I take the, um, the sweet potatoes and slice them up and put them in the, in the toaster oven covered in coconut oil and then strips of bacon laid on top of that mm. and it has Sounds to be good, perfectly man. cooked otherwise you're going to burn the potatoes or they're going to be too soft and you want them to come out like these sort of crunchy chips and so that takes like a couple hours to just finesse it and turn them turn the temperature down so when i decide to have that for breakfast I'm, i'll be eating that like two hours later good man and so we're on the training front now when we uh when we were catching up in tulum you mentioned about a, a variation on, on golf that you've taken up. What's that about? Oh, thanks for mentioning that. It's the greatest sport in the world. It's called speed golf. 
and it's actually a proper competitive sport where they have tournaments and they have a whole movement that's been resurrected. I used to do it in the old days, and it's it's kind of come and gone in popularity. But now, if you're interested and you're a golfer, you should check out speedgolfinternational.com. But anyway, what they do is they take this uh, slow-moving, very traditional sport and basically turn it up on its end to have some new exciting rules. And the way the competition works is you still count your strokes and you're, and you're competing to try to shoot a low score, but they're also counting the number of minutes you spend on the course. So your speed golf score is your strokes plus your minutes. So you can see how you still want to play good. It's not like a hockey puck out there just whapping the ball and trying to get it in the hole. Yeah. You're, you're trying to shoot pars and, and score very well, but you're also, the clock is running as soon as you tee off. So a good player can complete an entire 18-hole course in under an hour and still shoot in the 70s. I mean, the competitive guys in the tournament. So I've been a golfer my whole life. My whole family is a golf family. And I've also been, obviously, an endurance athlete. So it's kind of a perfect sport for me. And it's just so much more fun to know that, I mean, my strategy is I basically head out there to the golf course an hour before dark, and I'll play half the course or the entire course if I really hustle instead of taking five hours and having all plans and the giant bag of clubs and all the nonsense that you're packing in. You take a tiny little bag. You take half the number of clubs. I actually only take six clubs instead of the allowed 14. And I'll go out there, hit my shot carefully, of course, but then I'll jog or I'll, I'll get into a good pace, run up to the next shot, uh, stop, not take any time, hit that thing up onto the green, grab my putter, and you're just constantly moving, and it's, it's a very good workout. And the funny thing is, for golfers listening, that when you're in this rushed state where you're not in that analytical mode where you're sitting there obsessing over shots and what club to choose and getting in your head about your swing technique and your swing thoughts, what happens is you free yourself from that burden, and you're able to swing in a more natural, intuitive manner. So what a lot of competitors discover is even though they're rushing, and sprinting through the course, they're playing as good or better as when they spend all day out there looking at the wind direction and changing their mind back and forth and, and practicing their swing over and over. It sounds like you've actually made golf a sport <laughs> and it, and <laughs> rather than a pastime. Oh, golfers aren't athletes. You go on YouTube and, <laughs> and Google Speed Golf World Championships and you'll see oh, wow. uh, the bloke is actually from Ireland. The, the reigning world champion is named Rob Hogan from Ireland. No and way. just a few minutes glimpse of him in action on the course, it's phenomenal. I mean, the guy is running at an incredible speed and he's shooting 77 or 75 or 79. It's it's so amazing that, how that they means can still play well. So I'm, I'm going after those guys and uh, looking forward to competing on the circuit this year. So is a, is a 79 good then in golf terms? Um, you know, if you're, you're looking at a usual par score of uh, 72, uh, at most courses, 70, 71, 72 is what par is. And, you know, 99, literally 99% of the golfers don't come anywhere near there because yeah. it's a very, very difficult sport. And most most average golfers shoot in the 90s, which is a very respectable score, actually. So I take it, um, does the, the usual golfing attire go out the window for speed golf? Is it all like I think shook? you're kind of going in between. So you're not out there in uh, skin tight, you know, the gym clothes with the you can, uh, compression, <laughs> compression stuff. <but laughs> you want to have some comfortable comfortable golf attires is recommended because, you, you know, you get sweaty. You're out there in a, in a very difficult workout. I mean, you're carrying a bag. You're running as fast as you can, and um, it's a high-intensity, high-action sport for sure. So I, I pair that with staying out there on the track and, and coaching the young kids 
in the track, but also participating. Awesome. I'm going to have to, I might have a stab at that. I mean, I can't play golf to, to save my life. But I'm maybe... sure you could if it was that competitive. You'd, you'd learn it very well quickly. <laughs> you'd find a way to get, <laughs> yeah. get going. But you know what's funny is like there's the, the runners come in, like Bernard Legat, who I'm sure track fans have heard of, world champion, American record holder at middle distance, one of the greatest runners of all time. Um, he's fond of golf in his spare time. So is Nick Willis of New Zealand, who's a world championship medalist at 1500. And those two guys participated in the Worlds last year in Oregon. Um, and although they ran much faster, obviously, than anyone else in the field, their times were only in the middle of the pack because it takes so much longer to shoot 90 or shoot 100 than it does to shoot 77. Like Gad and Nick Willis... Uh, both participating in the, the world championships. So it's kind of cool to see the, the world-level runners coming in and joining the golfers and the guys who are trying to work both ends of it, ends of it to play better golf and run faster too. So I'm I'm keeping busy, and uh, I appreciate you guys uh, getting into chit-chat about the, the various other athletic options for uh, washed-up old endurance athletes. It's kind of fun. <laughs> No, I think it's just amazing. I mean, like, because we were having this chat earlier, funnily enough, about the enjoyment factor. And like you said, regardless of your age, there is always something out there that, that you can enjoy, you know. And I know some guys that um, that are in their 60s, 70s who are big on martial arts that they took up, like, in their later years. It isn't something they've been doing for a long time. It's just something they fancy doing in their 60s, 70s. And it keeps them moving, it keeps them active, and no doubt they could probably kick some ass as well <laughs> yeah that's great i mean it's, it's it's great what you guys are doing at fitter london too because someone can walk in the door and uh you know mention that they're in, enjoy this or that and then they can uh build their body and uh you know make it make it less risk of injury and more fun when you when you get a, a, a well-balanced approach to fitness well we certainly we certainly hope that's how people feel i'd, I'd like to think people enjoy our fitter london classes don't you Karis? well enjoy maybe not enjoy they probably don't enjoy it at the time, <laughs> at the time. but when they leave i bet they feel great <laughs> okay guys um i hope you did get a few little nuggets of information there and kind of get inside the mind of an ex-endurance athlete and kind of how he adapted you know quite late on in his career to a more like paleo primal approach to nutrition and his lifestyle and also how he's adapted to kind of new physical activities, etc. That was the episode, guys. I hope you loved it. We will certainly get Brad on again, maybe at a later date, because this dude is uh, just full of knowledge, just a great guy to have a chat with, and, and no doubt he's still got plenty to offer. So I'm going to say ta and see all of you over in episode number 23. Bye.